1: our fourth day together we're in the last leg and so um, due to the weather I thought I'd start with a poem Uh, this is by a master named Ikai and uh, it goes like this spring comes with its flowers autumn with the moon Summer with the breeze. Winter with snow. When useless things don't get stuck in your mind, this is the best season. I'll read it again. Spring comes with flowers. Autumn with the moon. Summer with the breeze. Winter with snow. When useless things don't get stuck in your mind, this is the best season. Can you picture that? So the rain comes, it's just raining. And then, the snow comes. Spring comes, flowers. So when you have a problem, it's usually because you're stuck in the wrong season. (laughs) Right? Isn't it? When you have a problem, it's usually because you have the wrong map. And the map's not related to the territory that you're in. So when winter comes, there's going to be snow. When 1 p.m. shows up, there's gonna be digestion. So by allowing yourself to feel space in your experience, around your experience, then you can just be as you are. And then the moment can just be as it is. And then your heart is open to what's actually going on. But most of the time, we're still reading an old map. But we're in a new experience. And maybe this is how most of us close our hearts down. Is that um, we don't allow ourselves to have our experience. We're trying to have another experience. Even though it's not our experience. So for example... Um, I recommend not reading about meditation too much. Because if you read too much about meditation, then when you sit, you tend to want to have someone else's experience. Especially if you read about enlightenment experiences. That's the worst. Because then you hear about someone's enlightenment, and then when you're sitting, you're like wanting to have their experience. But that's not your experience. And that's the thing about deepening meditation practice, is that it happens... Uh, it deepens your experience of your life. See, when you're working something out with relationships, there's always a dialectic between you changing and the other person changing. Always. This is going on. But meditation practice isn't like this. Yoga practice isn't like this. Because there's just you. (laughs) The other thing, like meditation's not changing, is the practice isn't really changing, but it's a mirror, and it really shows you what's going on. And that's why practice can be intense sometimes, because the mirror is right here, (laughs) and you try to hide, deek. So, um, usually we shut down because we judge what's coming up and we criticize it and we turn it against ourselves we turn our thoughts against other people and then we're not in our lives anymore. We're in virtual reality. And so if you feel angry, usually you say to yourself, there must be something wrong with me. Or if you feel a lot of envy, you might say, oh, there's got to be something wrong with me because I'm feeling all this envy. Or maybe you feel needy. And then you say to yourself, or you feel dependent. Oh, I'm needy and dependent. There must be something wrong with me. And then you don't allow yourself to have your experience. But your experience is just a moment in time and if you take it even further it's not really your experience it's just experience arising but you know we condone ourselves so much all the time so it's like you have a certain emotion and then it's like well I'm not supposed to have that emotion because like I shouldn't be angry because I'm a yogi and then you drive the anger, anger deeper and then one day it'll explode. So, because it's the last day, the theme that I wanna explore this afternoon is how to practice in a way where you can be unconditional with yourself. Because uh, we're all trying so hard to be somebody. And it's really exhausting Because uh, somewhere in the background, there's like an image of what the perfect somebody is that you could be. But spiritual practice has nothing to do with improving yourself. But it's completely, completely um, a practice of completion. Feeling yourself completely, as you are right now, without condoning it or rejecting it, or embroidering it, or freezing it. So this seems really hard for human beings, I think. Um, I want to read something else about spring. Uh, Some of you who've studied with me know that my my favorite uh, teacher is somebody named Dogen. Dogen. Dogen lived uh, in the 13th century, uh, just outside Kyoto in Japan. Um, I'm sort of obsessed with him. He's my primary teacher. Your teachers don't have to be alive. <laughs> Anyways, a couple of years ago, I actually went to go see where Dogen lived and where he was ordained, which is on this top of a mountain outside Kyoto called Mount Hiei. He was ordained there when he was 13. His biography is interesting because he lost his parents uh, before he was 10. And, you know, I don't know how many of you know the history of yogis and famous Zen masters, but most of them have this biography. Like, the Buddha's mother died when he was like seven days old or something. So, uh, when you're really young and you lose somebody close to you, Then uh, you will have a predilection to looking at life through the lens of impermanence. For Dogen, the story was he had lost his parents, and at the funeral, his mother's funeral, he was uh, looking at the incense, you know, and he was watching the incense burn and the smoke going. And then it just hit him that everything was transient. We all have like philosophy, oh, everything's changing, my body's changing. But sometimes it hits you so viscerally that it changes your whole life. Yesterday I was saying, it's the taste that turns you around. So anyways, he decided that the only thing he could do was become a monk and just uh, sit down right in the middle of all of this change. We could do that, I think, a little more. Like when things get hard, our tendency is just to start running around. Can you see it in your meditation practice? Like you're sitting there and as soon as things start getting a little difficult, I mean you're sitting still, but you start kind of running around. And that's the key thing about the breath, is that um, when you're inhaling and exhaling, when your mind is settled, you don't use a lot of breathing. You don't use a lot of air. It just, your breath gets really, really quiet. And so it's like a sine wave and it starts dampening, dampening, dampening. So the quieter your breath gets, the quieter your mind gets. And as your breath gets really, really quiet, your mind just gets so fine. And then as soon as you get distracted, your breath gets coarse again because you need more air to be anxious. But maybe the other thing that's cool about that is when the breath gets coarse again, the good thing is that that allows you to find your breath again. So if the breath didn't get that, you might not find it again. So this is an interesting dance to watch in your practice. And um, in uh, in very advanced states of meditation, like in the fourth jhana, which I'm not going to talk about, but. In the fourth jhana, your breath stops uh, for four hours. Literally, just your mind stops, your breath stops, and you just start it up again. We'll work on that sometime. I'm just not good at getting out of it. so I lose students all the time. I remember Patabi Joyce once said, "Like, if a student really gets the corpse pose and they don't get up, it's okay." <laughs> he said, "Like, lifting up like stiff board, it's okay." <laughs> but it is okay. I mean, imagine if you lay down to practice the corpse pose and your technique wasn't so good, and you were like letting go of let, of your breath, letting go of your, and then you just died. Yeah, like that's not a bad way to go. Because you might say, oh, I'm not ready yet. I'm so young and healthy and everything. But in the moment, if you're really letting go and then you just let go, that's really peaceful, that's a really beautiful way to go. So uh, hopefully you sign the insurance waiver. Just imagine if Kushala was known, like people were going really, really deep. They weren't coming back. <laughs> um. Anyways, I was going to read something about Dogen. I just went on a big tangent. Uh, Dogen has two lines about spring that are really interesting. And this is going to launch us into the Yoga Sutra. The first one he says if you're going to paint spring, don't paint cherry blossoms. So imagine you're a painter. And someone says, I'm going to commission you to paint a painting of spring. And you go paint cherry blossoms. Like, don't you hate when you you go to the airport and there's a picture of Vancouver and it's like the skyline with the mountains? Like, that's usually not our experience of Vancouver, right? So likewise, Dogen's saying, like, don't stay on the surface of things. Cherry blossom is the metaphor for spring. But if you're going to paint spring, show spring. Don't paint a cherry blossom. Don't paint something that stands for spring. Actually show spring. Isn't that beautiful? If you're going to paint spring, don't paint cherry blossoms. Just paint spring. In other words, if you're going to be yourself, don't be somebody. So then Dogen says, Life is a position at one time. Death is also a position at one time. For instance, this is like winter and then spring. We don't think that winter becomes spring, and we shouldn't say that spring becomes summer. It's very interesting what he's saying. He's saying... Life is always a position at one time. This is from a text called Uji, which is a... Oh, no, it's not. This is from the Genjo Koan. So he's saying... And this is an interesting practice. We should all try this sometime. Whenever you look at something, look at it as though it's a moment in time. So when you look at this, just look at it as a moment in time. When you look at your car when you look at your baby. How many of you are parents? Quite a few. When you look at your kid, just look at them as a moment in time. And then blink your eyes and then let them be a moment in time. When irritation arises, just see it as moments in time. Right? Birth, death, birth, death, birth, death. So he's saying your whole life is like this. It's just... A position in time. And he's saying death is also like this. It's just a position in time. For instance, this is like winter and spring. We say winter's changing now and it's becoming spring. Or as T.S. Eliot said, April is the cruelest month. <laughs> but actually, that's like painting a cherry blossom. Winter's not becoming spring. There's just this, this moment in time. Like when you feel sad, you shouldn't say, oh, well soon I'm gonna feel happy again. Or if your kid is really sad, you don't say, oh, it's okay, you're gonna feel good soon. You let their sadness be a position in time. And you meet the sadness as a position in time. Like, oh yeah, I really get how you're sad. I felt that way you know, or whatever it is. And then it changes. And then five minutes later they just want to be on the iPad. <clears throat> so don't say winter is turning into spring. And don't say spring is turning into summer. Because then you're on top of it. You're up here. You're not in it. Now you might get self-conscious say, oh my god, how am I going to speak? He's not talking about everyday lingo. He's not, like you can say, oh, it's so nice that it's summer finally, He's saying, in the way that you perceive, you can go a little deeper than how you talk to yourself and to see what's happening as moments in time. And maybe this is a good way for all of us to live or all of us to be in relationship. To see everything that's happening as moments in time and not superimpose on top of it some grand concept. And the same is true in this room, you know. Like when I'm at the front of the room speaking, this is my Dharma position. And when you're sitting and taking notes or listening, that's your Dharma position. But in another context, it could be completely different. You could be teaching something. So these are all positions in space and time in our lives. You don't have to hold on to them so tight. That's why in yoga practice whenever we uh, practice a pose, like in the standing sequence we've been working on, after the pose, we always step back to Samasthitthi.
0: Because
1: when you step back to Samasthitthi, you just drop the whole thing. You let go And you start again. Sama means equal. Sthithi means standing. You just stand there with equanimity. You let go. So if you just did Trikonasana, it was like the best version of Trikonasana you've ever done. Oh my God, this workshop's amazing. I'm so glad that I signed up for this with Michael. That was the most amazing Trikonasana ever. I am going to be on the Yoga Journal conference list. And then you step back to Samastitihi and you just drop the whole thing. And then you step around again for the other side, or you know, what the next pose is. Prasarita Parachanasana. And then it's like the worst ever. And God, yesterday was the best. Today is so it's so I'm so stiff and I just feel like I'm just getting fat. (laughs) <laughs> and like maybe I just and maybe this is more just for thin people and <laughs> like I just should stop eating bread you know and I'm going to become gluten free and only eat soy and corn genetically modified do you know what I'm talking about
0: <laughs>
1: and then you step back to some Samastitihi and you drop it again the posture is just a moment in time like everything else. You don't hold on to it. And there's some postures that are really like this, like backbending. Okay, the thing about backbending is like it's not linear at all. <laughs> so like, you don't really get better at it. I mean, you do. You can refine technique and so on. But some days, it really works. And some days, it doesn't work. <laughs> and the days it doesn't work, you're like, yesterday I had the most amazing backbend of all time, the best one ever in Port Moody and they took my picture for the website (laughs) but then today I can't even put my hands on the floor and then the day after it's amazing again so you don't hold on to it, it's not linear Trungpa Rinpoche called this spiritual materialism so when you're practicing your spiritual practice to get somewhere you're letting all of your attainments be like jewels on the chandelier of your ego So, um, let's open the Yoga Sutra. Oh, here we left off, which is line 117. So, chapter 1, line 17. When you sit still put your bum on the cushion follow your breathing you let the breath get soft and you just watch all of your grand ideas arise and pass away like I like this I don't like this I should get up I'm not going to get up I should get up Not gonna get. Yeah. Well. mm. You just watch this. You just don't believe all. You don't believe it. And then, um, as you become more and more still, the stillness becomes accompanied at first by analytical thinking. So the quieter you get, the more clearly you're going to start to see analytical thinking. This is whoever wrote this because I don't know who wrote this, but whoever wrote this, they really mapped something here about the human psychology that seems to me pretty accurate, more accurate than anything I've ever read about human psychology. This is how your mind works. And as you get more and more still, you see analytical thinking, like, for example, causality. You see, oh, when I move here, this happens. When I don't move this way, that happens. Uh when I identify with sleepiness, I get really sleepy. When I, Did anybody try this? When I just notice sleepiness, it's okay, it's just sleepiness. Right? Analytical thinking. And it's not bad. It's just, as you get quieter, you go from chitta vritti, to like, woo! And you just start to see analytical thinking. Then he says, the next thing that happens is you get insight. So there's analytical thinking, and then you... So in, the word for insight is vipassana, or in Sanskrit, vipassana. Pasha is an I, and vi means to go in. So sometimes it's translated as insight, because literally it means to go in and look more closely. And so you might see, dukkha, whenever I identify with something, it, I I suffer. Like, if there's sleepiness and you don't identify with it, there's no dukkha. Uh, anybody see that? But as soon as you like identify with it, there's dukkha. Right? Or you might notice, um, the sleepiness doesn't belong to me. There's sleepiness, but it doesn't actually belong to me. So this layer of having insight is the second layer that you start to experience when you practice. And it's not like you get to one and then you get to the other. You're always alternating between this. But he's trying to say that as your mind calms down, you really see analytical thinking, then you start having insight. And then, ananda, bliss or joy. The way I translate ananda is, um, everything's okay. I don't like the word bliss sorry, I know it's like the most popular word in the yoga world these days in British Columbia but Ananda just means the experience that whatever's here is okay it's okay, I'm okay I'm okay you're facing the most frightening thing that you've ever felt and you're still sitting there and you're okay this is why addicts get so much out of meditation practice. Because they sit there right through the wave of craving. And then it's gone. And they just got confidence, shraddha, they just got a lot of confidence that they can have power over the compulsion. You see? that they just sat there through it and it was okay and they didn't have a cigarette they didn't have the heroin. Whatever, whatever the addiction is email they didn't go to their email imagine this like you're hit with boredom and you just keep following the boredom and then it changes into something else and then you didn't go to your email imagine that how many times do you check your email a day? Yeah, I don't want to know. (laughs) Um, Then the fourth one, and this is the one that's to me really interesting, is Asmita, which I translate as the story of me. So the last thing that starts to happen in this stage of settling, sampragnataha, is you start to see Asmita. You start to see that all of these things are happening to a me. So, as you get settled, it still feels like it's happening to me. This is what what he's saying. Why? Because the will to be me is so strong. We've had it since we are a kid, and we discovered that our mother has breasts this is the worst discovery that you could ever make as a child because everything is going along great you're hungry the milk comes it's amazing and then one day you discover that the milk is coming out of a nipple which belongs to a breast which isn't your body and that's when a baby gets an ego, because you can only have an ego if there's an object, right? There's only a subject if there's an object. But a breast is not an object until there's a subject. And there's no subject until there's an object. So one day when you discover that the breast is not part of your body, that's when you get a sense of subjectivity. Right. And it's terrible. And th- and then I think as adults we're still suffering from this. That's why we get into codependent relationships. Because mm-hmm. like we can't bear the grief, I think. At some level, we can't bear the grief that like we can't control things. It's so terrible. Anyways, that's why Freud thought that all of religion was regression. Freud thought that people who got got into spiritual practice were getting into spiritual practice because they wanted to go back to what he called the oceanic feeling. That feeling of just being your mother. This was Freud's theory. I don't buy it. But it's a good theory. So anyways. um, Can I keep going and then we'll have a discussion? or Is there anything anybody needs to like... I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. Line 18. Um, Later, after one practices for a really long time and thoughts naturally come to a standstill, these four kinds of cognition fall away. Now, I realize that we're reading a section that might be ahead of where we're all at. But I thought we would look at it because it's good to know where this is heading. When these four kinds of cognition fall away, do, do you remember which four? Analytical thinking, insight, bliss, feeling like a self, then what's left is a trace of depth memory that he calls samskara. Let's say it,
0: samskara.
1: Sum is actually through Latin. Is where you get the word com, like community, c-o-m, and through the Roman is where you get the word sum, s-u-m, like in mathematics, like the sum of some, like samastiti, right? So samskara. And skara is where you get the English word scar, okay? So, samskara is the coming together of traces in memory. Okay? So, what's the, what this is saying is that our whole bodies, our sense organs, our brain, language, the whole thing has at its base traces of depth memory. And the memories are psychological, physiological, and cultural. They come both from nature and from nurture and from past lives. And if you don't believe in past lives, you have to believe in past lives because of genetics. We, like when you're born, you can't believe that it's a clean slate. When you're born, you're born with genetics. That's past life. That's not your past life, but it's past life. Every baby is born. And they come to be this human being. You can see it sometimes in the first day. You can see the face they're going to have. So this is all genetics. Is past lives. So then genetics meets the environment. And then you get scars. But the thing about sangskaras is they're... Nowadays you're supposed to call them plastic. I just like saying that, because it makes it sound like you're reading loss of neuroscience. Um, but what it basically means is that all of this depth memory, psychologists used to say, is all set once you're five. But actually, we know that that's not true. We know that every time you take an action, it deposits a trace in the depth memory. Okay. So let's say you're really, really bored, and you go to your email. Bored? Go to email. Because I can't tolerate the feelings around being bored. So then, you've just set up a trace, so the next time you're bored, you'll go to email. And if you keep doing that a lot, you don't even know why you're going to email. You're just going to the email. But you don't even know that it's this whole pattern you've set up because of the depth memory is running. And that's what's meant by samskara Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I could talk about this for like a month. This is the most interesting way of thinking about unconsciousness. So, um, so what's being said here is when everything falls away, what's like when you're not thinking anymore, all that's left is depth memory. So depth memory is sitting with breathing. Just depth memory. There's not a you there. It's just latent impressions. Isn't that a beautiful thing to kind of visualize? And then, can we keep going? And then Patanjali says, you die. (laughs) When you die, well, he's not saying like you're sitting here on the cushion, everything gets quiet and then you die. (laughs) He's just saying, when you die, once the body dies then these latent impressions go back into Prakriti. They go back into the natural world. So the idea in ancient India so this idea is like pre-Buddhist here. The idea is that everything in nature has, has these three qualities. I'm not going to get into it so much now. And, th- and they're never in balance. So some are more like inertia or movement, right? Um, So, when you die, all all of the sangskaras go back into the natural world. Like, literally, your eye has so many memories in it. And I don't mean things you've seen, but like how it's operated. And then as you get older, it doesn't work as well anymore. Right? Or like, Uh, your shoulder joint right depending on how you use your shoulder joint in your 20s that will determine how your shoulder joint moves in your 30s and how you move your shoulder joint in your 30s will determine what your arms feel like in your 40s I'm making this up I don't know if any of this is true but I think it's true and like how you treat your shoulder joint in your 40s will probably determine how it feels in your 50s right Like remember we were working with the shoulder joint this morning And some people were like, whoa Well it's just going to get worse Actually So this is a great thing about yoga practices You know, you've got a body You might as well try and feel good So Are you referring to the three
0: gunas? Yeah,
1: the three gunas So when you die All of these patterns Go back into the earth Your Your skin gets eaten up by worms. Your breath goes back into the atmosphere. The heat in your body, which is the fire element, it goes back into the fire element of the natural world. Your digestion, right? When you're dying, the first thing that goes is your, the fire element. body starts getting really cold because the fire element's leaving and it's going back into the world and then your breath gets more and more shallow because the wind element is leaving right? and going back into natural world. If you're religious, you're giving it back to God. Because when you inhale, God is exhaling. Right? Like when you're born, you're born on an inhale, it's like God has exhaled you into the world. And when you die, God's inhaling. So it's like God's going, okay, come home, come back again. And you just like, and the breath leaves you, the wind element leaves you. So all those samskaras, they go back into the natural world. But they don't die, because energy doesn't die. Okay? So this is called rebirth. So that your skin of your knee gets eaten up by worms, and then the worms excrete dung, and then out of it grows echinacea. And then your grandkid comes over and picks up the echinacea, not even realizing that that's your body. Your grandkids picking up your body. Or it's like you get burned and you go up in smoke and then you go up into the clouds and then a few days later it's your funeral and then it rains and your body rains down on your whole family everyone's there and they're like, oh god it's raining but they don't even realize that that's your body raining down on them and the rain goes in their skin and you go inside their body So. This is kind of a radical thing to think about. But the point of all this is to understand that when you die, you don't continue. So that's why rebirth is not reincarnation. Reincarnation, you have to explain how there's a you in there that continues sometime. Like when I was really young, I thought Hare Krishnas were really cool. I used to go practice with them, except they didn't like music except their own music. And uh, I remember them saying like, if you eat a burger, then you'll be reborn as a cow. I remember like, how is that? Like, well, what if you eat lamb sometimes and then a burger other day? Like how how do you know like which day it's gonna transfer into the animal? Well, they couldn't explain that. But anyways, uh, this is a really beautiful idea and it's important to remember that what's radical is this is a cultural critique that's set up in the text, which is trying to find a way to explain rebirth. How when you die, you don't continue. Right? Like the me, it doesn't continue. The saṃskaras go into the earth. And everything continues, but then this might make you think, well, of course, because the me isn't even here right now, (laughs) right? So this is what Patanjali is saying here: that all of these patterns um, they continue, just like. When you die, your family continues. Uh, If you have children, your children continue. If you have a company, your company continues. And all of this is is patterns that you've helped set up. So maybe this is a good thing to remember when you take action in the world, is everything that you do leaves a trace. So you should really contemplate what you're going to leave all the time. Like how you speak, it leaves a trace say stupid things. leaves a trace. So, um, in Burma, there's a practice where monks don't sleep in the same place more than two nights. Every two nights, they switch beds. They never stay in the same bed. So imagine your whole adult life is like this. You're always, so you never make, uh, you never grasp one Spa as your own. Um, so you might think, holy smokes, that is so deep. I can't even wake up in the morning and sit still for five minutes. Like, I don't think I'm ever going to get to this stage. So then Patanjali says, well, actually, just in case you're thinking that, for everybody else, <laughs> there's line 20, it starts, for all others... Like, just in case that kind of, like, you know... For some people, this might be really inspiring. Other people are like, whoa, I'm just trying to change diapers, and I don't think I'm even going to get there. He says, for everybody else, there are five superpowers. Uh, The first one is shraddha, which means confidence. When you practice, you'll start to get confidence, and you'll see that the teachings... Are accurate. You'll see this is true. The more you practice, the more you'll have confidence. You can verify it. Second, virya, and you'll have more enthusiasm. Third, thing you have to. So he's saying, like, if you can't do all this other stuff, just do these five things. Have confidence. In your practice, have the right kind of enthusiasm, an appropriate kind of enthusiasm for your practice. Third, smrti, mindfulness. Be mindful of your breathing, of your body, of your eating, of your walking, defecating, communicating, going forwards, going backwards, stretching your arm, stretching your leg. Everything you do, you do with mindfulness. Fourth, samadhi. Being one with whatever's going on. Sam means remember? Together. Adi is one. So coming together, so that's why it's often translated as integration. Being one with what's going on. And lastly, pragna, wisdom. Uh, this is a very very interesting word, pragna. I think wisdom's not such a great translation. It's a beautiful word, but it's not really the right translation. Uh, pra means before and gnya gnya let's say gnya 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 um gnya is where you end up getting the ink, the word through Latin gnosis. Which is where you get the word knowledge. Right? So, the the G is, becomes silent. Right? So, nya, mm-hmm. gnosis, knowledge. Same word. But pra means before. <laughs> before knowledge. So, the way I translate it is knowing before knowing. So, when you know something before you know something.
0: It's not innocence. What's Isn't that it's not innocence?
1: It could be innocence.
0: Would you call it intuition?
1: It's like intuition. It's like intuition. You know you know something before you know it. You just know. Yeah. yeah. Like before you say, oh yeah, I know that. You just know. <laughs> like, uh, I bought a house this year. And so, um, we bought it really fast. And I kept saying to Kareem, I said, it's so interesting that when you buy a car, you spend a lot more time looking at a car than a house. Right? and she said, yeah, that's so strange and then I thought, well that's because when you go to a house, you just know like with a car it's not like that but with a house, you just know you, my friend is an architect and um, when she designs houses for people, she gives them an exercise where this is, this is the only thing she asks the client before she starts the house she wants them to write a thousand words about the experience of walking to the front door. And they write it as like a story. They're walking to the front door of their house. What does it smell like? What does it sound like? Like, what are the first things you hear? Do you hear the kitchen? Do you hear the bath running? Or do you hear the ocean? Right. Uh, do you smell incense? Do you smell cooking? Or do you, what's, so as you're walking to the house, what do you smell? And that helps determine, is this where the garden goes? Or is the front door really close? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, Right? So so that is knowing before knowing. You know. So, um, trusting that. More trust in that. And then, the last sentence that we're going to look at for those who really want to be free um, and they practice wholeheartedly realisations near I love this idea of practicing wholeheartedly like practicing with your whole heart so if you want to be free you have to practice with your whole heart the whole thing not just like Half of it.
0: Sometimes the realization is that it's already going to
1: happen. Well, it's already happening, yeah. It is already happening.
0: So you're striving for something and it's almost like one day I realize what you're already doing.
1: Yeah. So that's why the funny thing about spiritual practice is striving really gets in the way. Doesn't it? Yeah. Trying so hard.
0: Trudging is what's necessary. Like Sometimes. Tr- trudging is, yeah. To me, trudging is to walk with purpose.
1: Yeah. Or like shoveling. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes there's a lot of shoveling. Yeah. But still, that's not the same thing as striving to get somewhere. So, do um, you ever have this in your relationships? Where, like, you're striving to have connection? And it just pushes the other person away.
0: Mm-hmm
1: you have to relax, usually and meditation's like this, you know because I, I teach a lot of retreats So, on retreat, there's always students actually they're usually young men where they've like read a lot about meditation and they just want to get enlightened and they're striving so hard just like pushing and pushing to get into like deep states of concentration it doesn't work because you can't get into it without re- relaxing And so the striving is just like a wall you've set up. Is
0: striving like grasping?
1: Yeah, a lot like grasping. I don't know if there's any difference, really. Gotta have that. So let's open it up for discussion for a few minutes, and then uh, we'll have a smoke break. And, I didn't miss one, but there was three things you said that the, the fire, the wind, and the ice. Oh. There? Well, there's the earth element. So, everything in your body that's earthy: muscles, bones. Yeah. Um, you know, mindfulness is really big these days. You heard about this? <laughs> if you actually just put mindfulness in the title of any book, it's a bestseller immediately, and it will attract research money. You could just be like mindfulness and anxiety. And you will just attract all kinds of research money. Mindfulness and insomnia. Oh, I'm serious. Mindfulness and yoga. Sorry, Andrew. I am going to answer your question. So, yeah. But in, in the teaching on mindfulness, called the Satipatthana Sutta, one of the sections, there's 14 contemplations. Where, you, where traditionally monks would go and they would watch the decomposition of a body and the 14 stages of decomposition. I can't remember if it's over 14 days or how long? Nowadays, you can't see bodies, dying, you know, dead bodies anywhere. But if you, many other countries, there's charnel grounds, where they'll leave a body out. And um, uh, I have a friend who showed me pictures of a body de- the 14 stages, but in photographs. And it's really cool. The body is lying on the ground, and every day, after 14 days, the body starts looking more and more and more like the ground. Literally, the color actually looks more and more like the ground. And then maggots come. And, and, And when the body is finally decomposing, like three quarters of the way through, maggots come from the inside. So they start eating your body from inside which means they were there the whole time I
0: don't know about that part yeah oh, it in there.
1: And, they, and it's just like the natural world is uh, decomposing and monks were supposed to meditate on this 14 stages so that's the earth element right? the wind goes, the heat goes and the last one is the earth element so that's why in Shavasana, when you lie down, it's really good to feel the earth element, which is what, uh, the instruction I give, the cue I give is gravity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And just like, just feel that everything earthy in your body is just like becoming pixels and it's just supported by the ground. And a good way to lie on the ground is not to trust it right away. Like you lie down as as if like you don't know yet if it's stable, and then you slowly and slowly relax and trust it more and more. So, it's the earth element, all the elements. The word um, samadhi. Samadhi. Yeah. yeah.
0: Sure. It's not something we need to reach out, it's just right
1: here. Oh, yeah. See, what every tradition does is they take a term, always. Every mystical tradition does this, every single one. They always take a term and they elevate it so high. And I have a theory about this. You'll notice I have a theory about a lot of things. My theory about this is this was done so that women wouldn't practice. So what they did was they would take meditative experiences and they would put them like at the top of a ladder and they would describe them as if they were up there so that women who were like taking care of the kids and cooking meals and everything, because men did this, they would feel like, oh well I can never get there. right?
0: Such as the word enlightenment.
1: Like enlightenment.
0: Which is kind of exactly. Exactly.
1: So, um, I don't know if any of that's true, but if I were to do a PhD, if anyone wants to do a PhD, that would be a good PhD topic, I think, would be the the way that gender and socioeconomic class plays into the way meditative states have been mapped. Mm -hmm. Right? Because that means that if you're in a lower class then you have to trust the Brahmin class to be able to show you that state. And then it keeps them in business. So they have, a, they, agen- like they have an agenda. They're invested in making sure that that's the translation. But anyways, maybe we're getting off topic. It's interesting to think about these things. Yes? What is your recommendation?
0: this
1: workshop um, when we go back home oh yeah <laughs> we're going to end in a few minutes well every morning when you wake up you should uh, sit down on a cushion like this and then you set a timer and you put it behind you where you can't see um, so you just go to the app store and you get the Michael Stone meditation app it's really good it has a really good timer, nice sounding bell you put it behind you and uh, you don't look at it and then so let's say you set it for 15 minutes just 15 minutes and then you put all your faith in the timer not in the practice, in the timer so the timer is going to be the container now and you sit in the container of the timer (coughs) And you follow your breathing like we've been doing. And whatever shows up in the soup, agitation, boredom, it'll all show up. You just breathe with it. And then when the timer's done, you bow, you get up, and you go do your day. When you do this every day, and something starts to happen, where you actually start to really enjoy it, and you start to see that it gives you like a baseline of sanity, And then during the day, when you get stirred up or someone cuts you off in traffic or whatever, the ability to be less freaked out is closer because it's a practice that you've been doing, just like if you were playing piano every morning for 15 minutes. It's closer, it's there, it's there. Someone says something or this is especially good if you do creative work. Because the problem with doing creative work day in and day out is like most of your ideas are not really that good. Like really. I mean you might think oh I'm so creative, but actually most of them are someone else's ideas. They're not they're not any they're not original. So meditation's really good for creative people. Because in the space of quietude it clears a space for more original thinking. And it might be original to an idea, like a business idea, or just origi- or, or original to uh, like another angle of looking at uh, an emotion that's repetitive. Anyways, you do this every day. And uh, the way I do it at home, because it's hard for me to wake up before my whole family, because there's like kids everywhere. But the, So what I do is I have the cushion, it's actually right beside my bed. Mm-hmm. I used to have like a special place with a big altar and everything, I'd light incense now I literally roll out of my bed and I don't even brush my teeth it's disgusting but I just roll out of my bed and I just sit down and that's what I do yeah.
0: Is that part of your
1: lazy it's like my lazy practice Like, like I just get out of my bed Whoop! I sit down on my cushion I don't wake anyone up Karina's sleeping, baby's sleeping just sit and then the nice thing about doing it that way, if you're a parent, is um, you can sometimes sit a really long time mm-hmm. because you can just keep sitting until everyone wakes up. And then it's actually better than setting your alarm because then everyone is kind of getting up and you're off sitting somewhere. So you just get out of your bed and they, don't, they just keep sleeping maybe another hour or whatever and you just get like a really good session. Sit. And then it feels like a retreat. It's really good. So this is what I recommend. And if you don't have time, um, the way I always say it is: if you are on Facebook, then you have time to sit. <laughs> Facebook has been writing me letters asking me to cease. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Did, did I answer your question?
0: Yes, and also anything um, else more, and yeah. also also.
1: Yeah, you should study. You should listen to the podcasts. I always say, like, Center of Gravity, record every single thing. For, I think, there's like a thousand hours or something of recordings. And uh, it's great to listen to the podcasts. You can do it when you're walking or doing dishes or uh, driving, you know and then in the podcast you'll hear me or other people talk about different texts and stuff, and then you say, oh, I want to read the Heart Sutra now or or, that sounds you know, like a great book that Norman Fisher wrote I'm going to go read that things like that then you need Sangha because it's pretty hard to practice without other people but a Sangha could just be one other person and you just say, listen my practice is really suffering do you want to just sit together once a week? Or like, let's read a book together or Let's read the Yoga Sutra together And just talk about it Or how about we both listen to this podcast And then we'll talk about it And uh, you don't drink alcohol you, know, you just like You don't do it like at the bar You just meet and that's all you do for an hour And if you don't have any community You just start one That's what I did Didn't have any community So I just started one Now it's like out of control <laughs> Like what did I ask for? My God, because I actually don't like people. <laughs> Whenever I go near a spiritual community, I always want. I'm like,
0: <laughs>
1: um, I didn't mean any of that. Do you think there's a role for your so, experience? oh wait, I'm not done. I'm not done. So, yeah, and then you should also practice asana. Okay, there. Yes. Yeah. I think you were next, though.
0: Well, I yeah. was going to ask about asana. Yeah. Like,
1: what your Well, when I was young, I had no responsibilities. So I used to practice asana three hours a day. Every day. For, like, almost 15 years. Yeah. So I've been doing this a long time. But now, well, I do a lot more sitting now. And, um, I have a lot of responsibilities in my community. So that's like also practice. And I really treat it as training. Um, and, uh, and then I also like practicing in the afternoon. So I split my sitting and asana practice up. Because like in the morning your mind is really clear, but your body is really stiff. I mean if you live in a hot climate like in Mysore, then it's good to practice in the morning. But in a climate like this, <laughs> Your your body's much looser in the afternoon. So maybe like before dinner would be a really good time to practice. Yeah. And, uh, and then you should practice as many days a week as you can. You should take one day off. Yeah. And if you don't know what to practice, you should do everything we did in this workshop every day until I see you again. And then we'll work more on it. That's how you learn... And you shouldn't take too many lead classes. Because lead classes are just completely confusing.
0: Lead classes.
1: Like yoga classes, when there's a teacher at the front of the room. You you should work with your body and your mind and your practice. And you've just learned so much you have no idea for the past few days. So I really encourage you to roll out your mat and then uh, really work with the Ujjayi pranayama, bandhas everything we've been doing. And uh, and then we'll build on it. And, you know, I'm not going to quit. So In ten years, we'll just keep going. That's my theory, anyways. Yeah. But not too many lead classes. I really feel strongly about that. Because yeah. then you're just listening to what the teacher says, you're doing all kinds of things, and that's really fun. Like, you should go to lead yoga classes, you should go to dance classes, you should go to step classes and Zumba and all the classes it's so good to learn things but that shouldn't be the core of your yoga practice because uh, then it's not coming from the inside that's what I think because then you're not really working on something all the time because you're just working on whatever the teacher is working on that day and most teachers are not that interested in you (laughs) they're not they're teaching a yoga class. They're not interested in your practice. They're not teaching the class to help your practice. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm being heretical, but I don't mean to be heretical. What does it
0: mean to help students practice?
1: Well, you need to have a relationship with them. And uh, you need to be willing to have a relationship with them. And you need to know, you need to learn with them collaboratively what they need and then work with them in that way and they'll give you feedback and you give them feedback it just develops and then the best part of working like that as a teacher which is kind of my method is then you really have to practice <laughs> because you're dealing with someone's life <laughs> like that person you're working with they have, that's their life that's not just like, oh yeah, come into a class and we'll learn a handstand. That's their life. So that means you have to go really deep in your life so that you can actually give them tools to work with their life. Or it's just uh, a fraud, and your cult will I just fall apart. Yeah. I, I love when I hear teachers go, you know, I'm down to two classes a week now so that I can just practice more <laughs> and study more this is why I'm moving like my community in Toronto is so amazing it's so big everything I'm doing is like growing on the outside it looks like a great problem to have but for me my practice comes first so for me I thought okay I have to extract myself somehow there's a, there's a teacher right now who I think is going to be the most popular Buddhist teacher Nin Rinpoche He's such a good teacher. He lives in the US. And his community was growing so fast. I mean, it was, I was just from the outside, just watching this Buddhist community grow and grow and grow. And then one day, he just walked away. He left a note, and he said, everything I've done has been recorded, so I'm leaving now for three years. You have lots to practice, and I'll see you in three years. And nobody knows where he went and he disappeared, and he went walking on pilgrimage in India and Tibet. Nobody can find him. But, uh, apparently they've got word, three years have just passed, and now he's coming back and he's going to keep teaching. I love that, I love that. That's really beautiful. So, that's a note to those of you... I know many of you are learning how to be teachers right now. And the most important thing is your practice. Because otherwise, what are you teaching? You're teaching someone else's idea about practice. You're not teaching your, what you're doing in your life. So when I come sit here and you know talk all day, I'm just talking about what I'm working with, my life. It's not philosophy. Yeah. So. They say yoga ruins your life. The Dharma ruins your life. Because when you touch the Dharma, you see what's real. And then you can't mess around anymore. <laughs> and then when you get far away from it, you can feel it. You can feel things are really not lined up. One more question, a comment, and then and the smoke break. You had a chance already, I think. Okay, yeah. Somebody who hasn't spoken.
0: Yes. Um, What's your name again? Present. Teresa. So I've, um, I've only been training, uh, training for about a year, yeah. and I find that it's interesting how you say not to not to go to a lot of leading classes, because I do find when I go to staff classes, I go with a certain mindset, and if the class is right. that way, I get very frustrated. Oh, well, that's great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, that's also good, too. Like I said, it's not that you shouldn't go to classes. That yeah. would be kind of absurd, right?
0: Yeah. But, just, but so yeah,
1: yeah. And sometimes you have to like discern is this resistance? Mm-hmm. Like are they doing something that just whoa, I really don't like when we work on inversions that you just need to open it to? Or is it also like, oh, this is just isn't good for me? And like I'm an adult and like this really isn't that good for me. Or I don't trust them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you ever get this with a teacher? It's like, Well, I don't trust I don't trust them.
0: Yeah. You never know what you're going to get when you come to work. Yeah. Yeah. Very...
1: yeah. So in that, there should be a thread. And then at home, you just roll out your mat. Oh, it doesn't cost any money. And you just do your practice. It's faster. You don't have to drive anywhere. And then if you kind of feel if you're like a lonely person and you're not that introverted, you're just like, oh, it's really hard to be alone. Then you just have a friend and just say, do you want to come over on you know, Friday afternoons and uh, we'll just practice for an hour or like three friends I bet you everyone here has a living room big enough to accommodate two yoga mats there's a yoga teacher named Mark Whitwell he he said something once I really liked he said the only thing you need to practice yoga is a really nice floor (laughs) he said everybody should have a really nice floor and that's all you need I like that a lot, that was really beautiful. So thank you very much.